I'm going to read the text aloud beginning in verse 22 of chapter 18, if you would follow along in your Bibles, and then we'll ask for God's help and consider this text of Scripture. This is God's Word. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. As it happened, while Apollos was in Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Lord, we ask for your help as we consider your word. We pray, Lord, that during the time that we have in these moments together, that it would be useful to us, it would be helpful to us, and most of all, Lord, that your Spirit would um, enliven our hearts to the understanding and the application of your Word. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. April 21st, 1855, a man named Edward Kimball made his way into a little shoe shop. Edward Kimball was not a pastor. He was not a quote-unquote evangelist. He was not even really that well-known as a, a minister of the gospel, but he was a faithful Christian. He was faithful in his church and, in fact, was a faithful Sunday school teacher. He made his way into that little shoe shop to see a young man. And back in the stock room, he found a young, that young man that he was seeking out, and he had a conversation with them. That man, that young man would go on not only to place his faith in Jesus Christ as a result of that conversation, but he would go on to be one of the greatest evangelists the American continent has ever known. That young man was D.L. Moody. And most of you, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, have heard of Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist who preached to, to thousands, hundreds of thousands, and untold scores of people were saved under the preaching ministry of D.L. Moody. And all can be traced back to the faithful witness of this man, Edward Kimball. He was a man who, who poured himself into others, and, and even though he was not well-known, even though his name would probably not be recognized by most people, he had a, a tremendous exponential ministry because he reached one. 
right? This is the theme that we're emphasizing this year. That we can't necessarily reach thousands or hundreds of thousands, but we are responsible to reach that one in our sphere of influence that God has given us to minister to. Well, in this passage of Scripture this morning, we see an example of those that are faithful to reach the one that is nearby, to instruct them, to disciple them, to help them on their path of growth in the gospel just like this faithful Sunday school teacher did for D.L. Moody. Now, you may have read on Facebook um, a, a popular version of events that trace a, an ongoing um, a cascade of conversions that came from D.L. Moody. So D.L. Moody, then to, to Wilbur Chapman, and then to Billy Sunday, and then Mordecai Ham, and then Billy Graham. Right? You've, you've probably seen that on Facebook. I hate to burst your bubble. It's not entirely accurate. I know, it's shocking. Something on Facebook would be less than 100% accurate. (laughs) The reality is that, that some of those men did have a tremendous influence on the next one in the chain of events, but not all of them were saved under the ministry quite the way the Facebook meme uh, puts it. Nonetheless, the point, the point still holds. The point is that as we influence people, we do not know, but that that person might have a, an even broader influence than we do. And God is calling us to be faithful to minister to those who are close by. As we have an opportunity to minister, we should be faithful to help others in their gospel journey. And that would be the challenge for us this morning from this text of Scripture. Be faithful to help others in their gospel growth. Be faithful to help others in their gospel growth. Well, in the first part of this passage that we read together, we see, uh, we see those that are helping the gifted. So in Acts 18, we meet a man who we're told in verse 24 is named Apollos, born in Alexandria. Now, I need to tell you that Alexandria was an epicenter of education. In fact, one of the largest ancient libraries that has ever been discovered was found in Alexandria. It was a seat of learning. It was an area that prioritized reading, education, being well-spoken. And so it would make sense that a man from Alexandria was also, we see in verse 24, what? An eloquent man. But he wasn't just well-spoken. He was furthermore educated in the scriptures. You'll notice that verse 24 tells us he was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. So he, he knew the scriptures well, but then he was also able to effectively explain, expound, give understanding to people. He was able to, to hearken to various texts and weave them together in a way that would formulate a, a logical argument. So here's a man who is gifted. He is talented and he comes to Ephesus. Now, while he's in Ephesus, we see in verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was also what? He was fervent in spirit. Now, that's important, because, because just knowing things is not sufficient. Just having academic information is not enough, but, but furthermore, he was, he was fervent in spirit. That is to say, he had a zeal. He had a zeal to teach. He had a zeal to do right. He had a zeal to explain the word of God. He was, he was fervent. He was earnest. So this is, this is what the Greeks in the ancient world would refer to as logos. 
He, he, he knew the material. He, he had the academic knowledge, but then also pathos. He had the energy, the drive, the zeal, the, the, the passion to give those truths to others. What does he do in verse 25? He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So his teaching was accurate. It was, it was well informed by the scriptures. But notice here that he's lacking something. It's interesting that just because someone is gifted, just because they have the ability to speak well, even if they are very intelligent and well informed, doesn't always mean they have it all right. We all have room to learn, don't we? We all have areas that we need to grow. And what we'll see here is that Apollos, although he was an educated man, although he was a a passionate man, although he was gifted and knowledgeable, yet he recognized that he needed to grow. Because what what does the text tell us? He spoke boldly in the synagogue, uh, excuse me, uh, he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, what's going on here? He had been informed about this one who was to come, the the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In fact, it is very likely that he even knew that Jesus Christ had come, but he didn't understand the redemption that was provided by Jesus Christ. So he knew repentance. I mean, John would have taught that very faithfully. He he knew that there was one to come that that people should trust in. He may have even known about the ministry of Jesus, but apparently he had not yet learned about the death, burial, and resurrection and how that work of Christ provided the redemption that he was seeking. Well, there were two very earnest people who were good Christians. They were much like uh, this one that reached D.L. Moody, Edward Kimball, that we introduced at the beginning. They were, they were if, if we could say it this way, faithful laymen. We met them a couple weeks ago when Pastor Dan preached from earlier in chapter 18. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. They're faithful in the synagogue. They go and they hear this guest speaker, this, this rabbi, this teacher who was, who was accurate, but was missing something pretty big. Missing some very important information. And so what do they do? Aquila and Priscilla, I'm reading in verse 26, heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. We might say they discipled him. They came across this man who who knew a lot, who had the ability to teach very well. And what did they do? They taught him. They pulled him aside and said, there's some things that you need to know. There's some things that are lacking in your teaching. Let us us fill in the rest for you. Well, there is so much that is packed into this little illustration. He had learned, uh, Apollos had learned of the preaching of John the Baptist, identification of Christ as the promised Messiah, but he was still, if we could put it this way, he was still an Old Testament saint. He was still looking forward to the redemption that was provided in Jesus Christ. Even though chronologically it had already happened, he was not aware of that. This was, this was new information. And so the verb here is that, that Quill and Priscilla took him 
to themselves. It's a very delicate, it's actually a, 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 a verb that we don't really have in English. It's called the middle voice. And it, it's a very delicate idea. They took him aside, gently, tactfully instructing him in the way of redemption. I would just note for us a, a number of things. First of all, the importance of discipleship. The importance of when you see potential in a person, which apparently Aquila and Priscilla saw potential in Apollos, to, to make it a priority to, to teach that person, to help that person in the next step of their gospel growth. Aquila and Priscilla, as we, as we saw a couple weeks ago when Pastor Dan was unfolding the text for us, they were laymen who were committed to discipleship. I mean, this is the heartbeat of our church is this idea of, of taking people to the next spiritual step. Sometimes that will be an unbelieving neighbor or coworker or friend that you're having a gospel conversation with, and they've not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it will be a young believer that you are endeavoring to pour yourself into, showing, showing them an example of godliness, helping them to understand the scriptures more fully, instructing them, teaching them. Well, apparently that's what Aquila and Priscilla were committed to. Just that quiet, everyday priority of discipling people. And they had tremendous impact on others through the ministry of this, this gifted man named Apollos. Apollos would go throughout the countryside preaching, and as we saw later in the text, refuting very eloquently the Jews who would oppose this new Christianity. Martin Luther actually believed that Apollos was the author of the book of Hebrews. I was discussing a couple weeks ago with someone. They said, how many letters did Paul write? I said, well, it depends. That's a good lawyerly answer, right? It depends on how you count Hebrews. Oh, Hebrews wasn't written by Paul? Well, we, we don't know. We haven't narrowed down to a few options. All right? Martin Luther believed because of the eloquence that is found in the book of Hebrews, especially in the original language, that it was written by Apollos. And that is perhaps a possibility. Others believe Paul, others believe Timothy. There are a few different ideas. Nonetheless, Apollos had a tremendous ministry. And really, Aquila and Priscilla had a tremendous ministry because they prioritized discipleship, reaching out to the one who had potential. I would also note this, the way they did it was, is of interest to me. Right? They didn't call him down in the synagogue. They didn't say, now wait a minute, you're wrong. They didn't publicly reprimand him. They kindly took him aside and instructed him more thoroughly. 1 Thessalonians says this, Now therefore we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. That's strong. Those who are unruly, those who are rebellious, are to be warned. Comfort the faint-hearted. Those who are inclined to quit. Those who are um, needing encouragement. Comfort them. Uphold the weak. So our responses to people are different based on the situation in which we find them. Strong rebuke is not always the order of the day. Arguing with someone, correcting them, particularly in a, in a public setting, is not what we are to do in many, many situations. 
Aquila and Priscilla not only have a heart to, uh, to propagate truth, but they have a heart to do it in a way that is, it is wise, that is prudent. They take Apollos aside. Let me just challenge all of us. We are going to see truth. Um, we're going to see truth lacking in, in, in ways. And if, if you are a person, I dare say, if you are probably a member of this church, you are probably a person committed to truth. I mean, we're kind of passionate about that around here, right? Like truth matters. Accurate doctrine matters. And that's a good commitment. But here is the temptation that we fall into when we are people who are committed to truth. We think everybody's got to be corrected now and fast and hard. I mean, that's our temptation. Like, I, that's an error. Let's, let's jump in there and fix that. And sometimes the, the aggressive, bombastic, public rebuke approach is not the right one. Aquila and Priscilla are wise enough to understand that some situations call for gentle discipleship. Let's take this man aside who doesn't quite know everything he needs to know, and let's instruct him. And so that's what they do. Be careful how you correct those in error. Truth matters, but so does our spirit in giving the truth. And then, of course, we understand here the implication of those two things. Christian ministry is not limited to full-time ministers. We're all ministers. Uh, These devout this devout couple have greatly advanced the gospel through the ministry of discipleship. You may reach thousands. You may even reach millions through the one or two or three people that you reach in your lifetime. So set out to reach the one. So they've, they're helping the gifted. We see also in this passage in chapter 19, we see them helping the sincere. So we said a moment ago that just because someone is gifted doesn't mean they have it all right. We see in chapter 19, just because someone is sincere doesn't mean they have it all right. In Acts 19, we see, and it came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the highland regions, came to Ephesus, and found some disciples. So Paul had to travel all across what is now southern Turkey and came down from the hill country to Ephesus near the seacoasts. So there are some disciples here. They were in the same condition that Apollos was before Priscilla and Aquila had had encountered uh, him. That is to say, they had faith. Now, there's a few different viewpoints on what is happening here um, amongst these disciples of John. Uh, Were they genuine believers? I take the position that they were in the sense that an Old Testament believer uh, was was a genuine believer, right? They they lacked the full understanding of the gospel, but they believed in so much as they knew, right? So some would say, you know, they're not converted yet. Well, I, I would put it more in the category of an Old Testament saint, that once they receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are then given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is what we see in Acts 2 with the Jews, right? So that's that's how I view what is, what is happening here. So just to kind of illustrate it, during the latter part of the 18th century, there were many colonists who left Virginia and they started through the mountains to settle in the, in the valleys and the hills and hollers uh, that were in the western part of the continent. Uh, for whatever reason, maybe, maybe the, the threat of Indians, maybe the death of their horse, 
maybe the breaking of a wagon. They, they were forced to stay in the mountains. They weren't able to come back east. Well, there was a lot that transpired, you know, in 1776 or so. Right? You remember all of that? Well, well, they were tucked away. They didn't know about that. They hadn't, they hadn't seen anyone from outside their little sphere, their outside group, perhaps a few Indians here and there, but they didn't know what was going on. Until many years later, when the travelers made their way across and, and encountered these mountaineers, there was conversation that would ensue. Well, well what do you think of the, of the Continental Congress? And the war for independence, to which they would respond, well, we have not heard of a continental congress. We, we know nothing of a republic that you speak of. See, they were now citizens of, of a new country, of a new nation, of a new republic that they didn't even know anything about. This is similar to the situation that these disciples of John were facing. They knew that the one was coming that would redeem they knew that they were to look to that one who would redeem in faith, but they didn't know that the Spirit had come and that the Spirit was the gift of those who were, were baptized into the work of Christ. And so I would note here that a sincere pursuer of God will welcome additional truth. Right? Sometimes we use ignorance as an excuse for willful ignorance. Oh, well, they're sincere. Don't bother them. Well, sincerity is good. But a genuine person, a sincere person, is going to welcome more truth. And so that is what happens here in chapter 19. There is a conversation here with Paul. Paul inquires of them about their background, their theological understanding. And then he explains to them in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying that people should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. So he goes on to explain to them the gospel. He explains to them the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we see the fourth Pentecost type uh, event happening in the book of Acts. So we see this in verse 5, right? When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So we've seen four occasions in the book of Acts where the Spirit was given as a gift. First, to Jewish believers in Jerusalem, right? Then you remember Samaritans through Philip, and then to the Gentiles by Peter, and this is the final episode to dispersed Jews through Paul. So these occasions are accompanied by the sign gifts, right? Every time we see, when we see new revelation being given, the gift of the Spirit, and then the authentication of that gift of the Spirit comes with the sign gifts. So we see here in verse 5, Paul lays hands on them and they speak in tongues and they prophesy. This is the third occasion of tongues in the book of Acts, and it's actually chronologically perhaps the last time we see it. Now you say 1 Corinthians, that has tongues, right? It's actually believed that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians right around this same time, in fact, perhaps from Ephesus during his stay here. So chronologically speaking, this is kind of, we see the end of tongues 
Because you'll remember that the, the New Testament teaches us now that whenever someone places faith in Christ, 1 John, that the gift of the Spirit is part of the package of getting saved. The, the Spirit comes. And so the authentication of the giving of the Spirit is, is demonstrated throughout the book of Acts, and this is actually the last time that we see it occur uh, in the New Testament. So these believers... These followers of John, these disciples of John, have a fuller understanding. They embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they were inclined to do already through the preaching of John. And now they have a tremendous ministry. And from there, from that city of Ephesus, the word of the Lord goes out powerfully. I want you to notice just a little, it, it, it may escape our notice, but I want to point it out for us. In verse 10, well, let me back up to verse 8 so we get the context. And he went into the synagogues and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning, persuading, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when they were hardened, and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples. So what's happening here is he is, he is exhorting the Jews, your Messiah has come. They reject that Messiah. This is Paul's normal MO, right? He starts in the synagogue. He presents the gospel to the Jews. When the Jews reject, after a few months, he, he pulls out. The disciples remove themselves. And now he is reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, the school of Tyrannus would have been operational during the morning hours. And so Paul is now probably using this, this uh, area, this inst room or section of instruction, uh, this place adjacent to the temple or adjacent to the synagogue as a place of instruction. Now, what I take from this is just because we see a need doesn't mean we can meet it. Now you say, well, what do you mean by that? Where do you see that in the text? I mean, that, that doesn't even sound right. We're always supposed to be meeting the needs of others, right? The fact is that sometimes we have to think carefully about how we can meet the needs of others. Um, Miles and I were downtown late at night this week doing a board-up call, and uh, we were discussing the homeless population. And Miles asked an insightful question. Miles is good at asking insightful questions. He said, we have a, do we have a responsibility to give the gospel to this group? And the answer is, of course, yes. There's actually a sense in which we're responsible, what? To give the gospel to everyone. I mean, we are responsible for gospel propagation to the world. That's, that's everybody. Are you and I, in our lifetime, going to be able to give the gospel to every single person? Well, probably not. I mean, unless you're some sort of a miracle worker, uh, you're not going to be able to verbally give the gospel, which part of the beauty is that we as a body, as, as, God, as the body of Christ collectively also have that responsibility. And so you're going to be able to reach people that I might be able to reach, and I might be able to reach people that you are not able to reach. And so ergo, our, our theme for the year, reach one, reach that person. But the other thing that we have to think about is that sometimes our reaching of others is strategic. And I would just make the point here that Paul is a master strategist. And what he does here actually has tremendous effect. Notice, please, the effect that it has in verse 10. 
This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So here is Paul, a master strategist, actually choosing to curtail his travel for two years while he is teaching. So Paul takes a position as the president of the Ephesian Baptist Seminary, right? And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do is we're going to train men for ministry. And actually, if you follow the trajectory of the rest of the New Testament, you see that the church at Ephesus really was a training center. Such that when Paul is making his final journey, he calls for the elders from Ephesus and his final challenge. Right? There was a group that was being trained there. There was kind of a, I mean, I mean, I say it tongue-in-cheek, but there kind of was a primitive seminary in the Ephesus church. So much so that what happened? Asia was reached. Do you remember the book of Revelation? Do you remember the seven churches in, anybody remember? Seven churches of Asia Minor. How did those churches get reached? We have no record of Paul going to some of those places. It's fair to assume, as thorough as the Acts narrative is, that if we don't have record of it, Paul probably didn't go there. How did they get reached? I think this is how they were reached. This is how these cities received the gospel. And churches were planted because Paul was strategically staying in one location and training messengers of the gospel. Now, I recognize that there's a little bit of supposition. There's a little bit of... of um, of guesswork that's woven into what I just said. Okay, but I, I think if you look at it, there, it's a reasonable assumption that Paul is, is working the entire Asia Minor area really by his ministry there in Ephesus. Again, it goes back to this idea of what? Discipleship. Right? As we sow into others, that, that effort multiplies. It goes out to, to other people. Really, the theme of this whole passage is disciple the ones that you can because they're going to reach the ones that you can't. This is what Aquila and Priscilla do through Apollos. This is what Paul does for these disciples of John. Oh, wait, did I mention the church in Ephesus was a strong and powerful church? Where did he get its leadership? Could it be these 12 disciples of John who were already trained in the scriptures, who were already uh, zealous men, formed the leadership team of the Ephesus church. Well, again, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But again, I think it's a, a reasonable assumption. And now we see here a, an effect going out throughout the, the area, throughout the region, as Paul is teaching in the school of Tyrannus. For all of us, we can reach somebody. Whether it's an Apollos who will go out and eloquently preach the gospel throughout the known world. Whether it's these disciples of John who will faithfully minister in a training center such as Ephesus. Whether it's Paul who pours himself into his, can we call them preacher boys, right, who go out and faithfully plant churches throughout Asia Minor. You and I are to help others. 
whether it's an unbeliever who does not, has not yet embraced the gospel, whether it's a, a young believer who has embraced the gospel and needs to be trained, needs to be taught, needs to better understand, you and I can and, and we should help others in their gospel growth. Who are you helping today? Who are you helping this week? Who are you training? Who are you encouraging? Who are you taking aside and gently and lovingly instructing them in how they can better minister to others? The challenge for each of us is what we see exemplified in this passage, help others in their gospel growth. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We thank you for the way in which you work in our hearts and lives. And I pray that you would help us to reach one, that we would lead one, that we would find that one that is to lead us, is to instruct us. And then, Father, that you would use us to send people around the world.